everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in and welcome to High Five Success Stories, where I interview women from all different backgrounds who can offer advice and inspiration to millennial gals. I hope you enjoy and have a great day. Hi, everybody. I'm very excited to share my interview with my friend, Pam McGonigal. Pam is in her late 40s, living in Ardmore, Pennsylvania with her husband and son. Pam is a truly genuine human being. She is the most grit out of anyone I've ever met. Pam was born with albinism, so as a result, she has suffered from vision defects throughout her life. She's considered legally blind. However, that never, ever stopped Pam from doing anything extraordinary. Throughout the interview, Pam talks about how she went to the 1992, 1996, 2000 and 2004 Paralympic Games for track. In 1992, she tells us the awesome story about how she struck gold in the 3000 meter race, which is just around two miles, and bronze in the 800 meter race, which is a half a mile, and bronze in the 1500 meter race, which is just shy of one mile. She tells us all about her guide runners and dog guide runners as well. It is so cool. Pam talks about how she sometimes sees her disability as a gift. When she encounters failures or setbacks, she is able to bounce back quickly because she is already wired to navigate difficult situations due to her disability. Pam also talks about her son, JT, who she and her husband adopted from China when he was just four years old. Pam is a wonderful human being. I hope you enjoy her interview as much as I did. Okay, so hi, Pam. Welcome to High Five Success Stories. Hi, Steph. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and thank you on late notice, too, as we just discussed. My sister-in-law, Mary-Kate, you coach Mary-Kate and my brother Tony's kids in cross-country, called me out of nowhere on, like, Monday or Tuesday night, and I needed someone to interview. And now here we are on Friday morning, so I really appreciate you doing this last minute, too. Sure. So I thought we'd start out by having you provide us a little bit of background on how you got into running and then maybe touch on um, growing up being albino too and how um, running may have helped you in that area as well. So um, I really wasn't, I was always very active in Mm -hmm. elementary school, but in sixth grade, all of the students in our school district were required to participate in a track meet. And at first, I was a little bit overwhelmed by that idea as, um, you know, I was very well aware of my visual impairment. Mm-hmm. Um, I was pretty small, so I knew that I wasn't going to be a thrower. Um, I wasn't particularly fast, so I knew that sprinting was out. Um, but since it was a requirement that everyone participate, I settled on the idea that I would run the 800 meters, which was the longest event for the, for the track meet. And, and just so listeners know, 800 meters is twice around the track. Yes. For those of yes, people who are running. 800 meters is a half mile, half two mile, laps yeah. around the track, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I went home and I told my parents that I was going to win. And, um, you know, my mother was quite concerned that her visually impaired daughter thought that she could go out and run this track meet and win. And my father said, let her train to win and mm. just let her go. So I trained, but it's kind of a loose kind of training when you're in sixth grade and don't right. really know what you're doing. <laughs> so I would literally go run around the perimeter of the house, which wasn't really all that far in distance. But race day came and we lined up and it was a fifth mile track, which means there are five laps to the mile. And so the 800 meters was two and a half laps in that situation. And one started and stopped at different places on the track. And with the fact that I was visually impaired, we lined up at the starting line. And I put myself on the very inside because I didn't want to get mixed up with everyone because I knew visually I could not see them. Mm -hmm. and That would be problematic. And then they pointed to where the finish was and I couldn't see that. So I was like, okay, fine, I'm just going to run. And so I ran and I did fortunately end up winning that race. And that was sort of the kickoff to my running career. I then um, proceeded to run in junior high cross country and track and high school cross country and track and so on. Did you have running guides with you in high school and college or not yet at that point? Not yet at that okay. point. I wasn't aware of the concept. So my, okay. my mindset was we knew cross country was always going to be challenging because of the visual component or the mm-hmm. lack of vision for me. Right. And so I looked at that as a way to just be a part of the team and to train and get fit. And I knew that my time would come during track season and that's when I could shine. And it was hard because I knew that there were people beating me in cross country that mm-hmm. I knew that I was physically more fit and more talented then. So that was that was kind of hard, mm-hmm. but I think that it also built a certain kind of strength and perspective and, and right. resilience that did well for me later on. Um, and then in college, my vision started to decrease even more 
and I really struggled to maintain my place on the team because I mm -hmm. spent more time falling during training runs okay. out on the roads than I did up on my feet running. So eventually it just kind of petered out and um, I sort of gave, gave up running. And, uh, and that was in college? That was in college, running? Okay. yes. And then I had um, to fulfill some hours for my health and physical education degree. And so I worked a clinic for people with physical disabilities. It was all sports oriented. Someone recognized that I had a visual impairment, mm -hmm. recognized that I was sort of guiding off one of my friends, came up and told me about the Paralympic movement and the concept of using a guide runner, a sighted guide to okay. serve as my eyes. And so that's when I started running again. Okay. And so tell me about running with um, the running guides. How does that work? Like, how do you build the relationship with them? Do you do it with a bunch of different running guides or is it just one person? So it's um, ideal if you have a, a lot of different people to, to run with and to train with. Okay. Um, especially if you're running, you know, six, seven days a week, anywhere mm -hmm. from five, six to 15, 20, 25 miles at a time. So I've always um, tried to recruit multiple guides, which proves to be challenging at times just mm -hmm. because I think it's different to people and they don't understand um, what it entails. And right. so they tend to shy away from it. Um, but I've also had some absolutely phenomenal guides over mm -hmm. the years and um, the relationship that you develop with the guide is is very um, it's very important because basically you're putting your safety and your success in their hands because mm -hmm. they're serving as your eyes so um, it's important that there be a lot of communication mm -hmm. um, and that you're able to read each other and that you understand each other so that you're able to maximize the, the team effort that it takes to go out and run your race and to run it successfully. Right. So does the guide runner, so you started running professionally uh, with Paralympics. Do they run with you in those races as well? Yes. Okay. So you would have a designated guide or two that would accompany you on trips and um, that person would train with you while at the, at the games and then race with you as well. Okay. Got it. And they, the, the guide literally mirrors you in the sense that they are, are either running right beside you on your left or right, depending on what mm -hmm. your preference is. Um, sometimes the person just runs beside you. Sometimes you run um, by touch where you might wrap your hand around their wrist, mm -hmm. depending on the terrain. Or you might use a tether, which is basically a shoelace taken out of a shoe, tie it at the end, and then... Each of you take one side of the tether. You might also guide run by putting your hand on a person's elbow. Okay. And that, when you have the physical contact with the person, that allows you to feel what their stride is doing and if they're stepping up, stepping down, stepping right, stepping left. So it allows you to more smoothly um, navigate any obstacle that might be in one's route. Okay, so interesting. I need to get involved in that because, to be honest, I didn't know a lot about guide runners until I started doing you know, the research on you and everything. Mm -hmm. It's a really cool concept. So, so one book I touch on a lot in my podcast interviews is Angela Duckworth's. Um, she's a professor at Penn mm -hmm. and, and lives in Philly. Do you know her at all? Or have you heard of her? I've heard of her, and it's okay. funny because I just saw her book listed I think on like Amazon. Okay. When I went to Amazon, it popped up as something that might be of interest. Right. And then I saw that you like that book and that you, you oh, that's so funny. a couple quotes. And yeah. So this was literally like 10 days or two weeks ago that okay. I saw her book and I hadn't bought it at that point, but I, I then read more about it and I'm definitely okay. going to check it out. Very cool. Yeah. So she um, wrote the book, Grit, the Power of Passion and Perseverance. Um, and so one quote from her book, and I've used this in some other podcast interviews, but I thought it'd be a cool one because um, it relates to running a lot. So she says, to be gritty is to keep putting one foot in front of the other. To be gritty is to hold fast to an interesting and purposeful goal. To be gritty is to invest day after week after year in challenging practice. To be gritty is to fall down seven times and rise eight. So it's more than evident that you have a tremendous amount of grit, given that you are legally blind and have won gold medals at the Paralympics, which is amazing. Can you tell us how you used grit to qualify and train for the Paralympic Games in 1992 and then went on to strike gold in the 3,000 meters and two bronze medals in the 800 meters and 1,500 meters. And for the listeners, 3,000 meters um, is about two miles, correct? Correct. And then 800, like we said, is a half mile and 1,500 meters is just shy of one mile. Correct. So um, grit, it's funny this year, um, they, 
a woman from a Jean Angel Arm Academy that I coach with, Case and Chile, we selected a word for our team um, season and it was great. Mm-hmm. So oh, it's so funny. So that funny, this yeah. Is again, showing up mm-hmm. because we tried to, you know, we, we wanted the kids to embrace having grit. So mm-hmm. this is great. So I think all of us, and especially people with disabilities, have to embrace grit in their daily activities, day in and day out, because Mm -hmm. there's so much that we adjust and accommodate and adapt for ourselves throughout the day, sort of on the fly. And if we didn't have that ability to, you know, fall down, get up, get up, fall down, you know, it would be hard for us to go and basically go through each day mm-hmm. as we do. So I've sort of always just been programmed to to be like that. I think okay. it must must be wiring or something. Mm-hmm. But I, um, you know, I've always sort of been okay. Set my goal, pursue my goal, um, realize that in that process of pursuing the goal, there are going to be lots of obstacles and challenges that I have to overcome. And if I really want to get to that goal, then I'm going to fall down Mm -hmm. and I'm going to fall down over and over and over. But what I need to do is to get back up and realize to just keep, keep my eye on that goal and and keep Mm -hmm. pursuing it and realize that if I believe I can, that I eventually will. And I think that that's true for anyone. That doesn't mean that sometimes when we fall, it's not hard to get back Mm -hmm. up. And, um, that's when I guess we need a little extra grit in our day. Um, is there a time in particular where, um, you know, you experience a time where you, you failed and, um, you had to use grit to get back up and persevere. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can give us an example of a time like that. Sure. I think, um, in your question, you really touched on one of those times in my lives and that mm-hmm. life. And that was in, um, 1992 at the Barcelona Paralympic games. I had been running a little bit over a year at that point, mm-hmm. And my father, um, had been diagnosed with prostate cancer and it was terminal at that point. And, um, on his deathbed, I made him a promise that I would bring him home gold. And the reason I did that is that my father always encouraged me and believed in me and was very supportive of my running from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And without that initial support, encouragement, and belief in me, you know, I may not have developed into the runner or the person that I have today. So that was a very big promise and not one I recommend making. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It's fairly stressful, but I sort of just kept my eye on what I had promised him, knowing that if I worked hard and things lined up on that day, it would work. Mm -hmm. So I had actually been focused on the 1500 meters. Okay which was my uh, second race of the, of the Paralympic Games. And the first race was the 800. And I was pretty confident knowing just that where my abilities were, that the 800 wasn't going to be where I struck gold. Mm-hmm. It just, you know, I knew that I was a medal contender, but it wasn't likely that I would strike gold in that event okay. because of my strength. And so I ran that event and I ended up getting a bronze. And um, that was okay. That Which was is still amazing. amazing, yeah. It was still, it was still good. <laughs> And then the next race was the 1500, which I had really put all of my efforts into, all of my focus. And that was the race that I truly believed would be golden. It's such a tough race, too, because yes. uh, listeners know it's just shy of a mile, but you're really sprinting the whole entire way. You are. It's yeah. pretty much run fast the first two laps and hold on, hang on the, yeah. the third lap and try to crank it up and mm-hmm. finish strong on the fourth lap. It is mm-hmm. definitely a grueling, grueling event. Mm-hmm. The early execution of the race went perfectly. My guide and I were totally in sync. We were totally communicating. I felt great, nervous, but calm and confident at the mm-hmm. same time. Um, came into the finishing stretch about 200 meters out, started to make my move, which I knew I needed to make early on because mm-hmm. I wasn't a pure speed kind of runner at that time and so I knew I needed to start the kick a little bit earlier than my Russian and German counterparts and about 50 meters from the line the Russian broke between myself and my guide runner splitting us apart okay and therefore putting me in a position where I had no no vision and no guide runner and we almost came to a, a complete stop and I ended up crossing the line third as a result of that, which unfortunately I ended up at that point. But however, at that moment, I wasn't thinking bronze was so fortunate because right. that's where I had put my hopes for that going mm-hmm. for my father. So as you can imagine, I was completely devastated. Mm-hmm. I, I was angry. I was sad. I was just every emotion that you can think of. And um, fortunately, I had a good team of friends and coaches around mm-hmm. me 
And I spent most of that night crying, sitting on my laps crying, right. <laughs> just trying to figure out, like, that's it, it's over, it's done. But fortunately, they were able to redirect me, and I was able to find that inner strength and that grit mm-hmm. that I very much needed at that point, and refocused um, on the 3,000 meters, okay. which was several days later. So and you stayed in uh, Barcelona for some time? Yes. Okay. We were there for about three weeks. Okay. And um, so then the 3,000 meter came and obviously the pressure was really, the personal pressure was really significant at that time because mm-hmm. I knew that this was my last chance to give my father that gold. Mm-hmm. And although I knew that no matter what I did in that race, he would be proud of me, mm-hmm. I still, in my heart, knew that I needed to get that gold for him right. and for myself, I guess, as well, obviously. Right. And um, so we went out and the race executed absolutely beautifully. I had a whole cheering crew in the stands. There were 80,000 standing room only in the stadium that night. And I could hear the voices of my friends and my my coaches um, with about 100 meters to left. That's where their position was on the track. And we went out hard. I wanted to make it an honest race, an honest pace. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. With 300 to go, we had a very comfortable lead, and so we were able to relax just a little bit okay. so that we could just enjoy that moment, but not too much. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we stayed focused, and we didn't showboat or anything, but mm-hmm. we were able to just cherish that last 300 mm-hmm. meters. And, and is a guide runner at the same time telling you, like, where you are and the yes. lead and everything? Okay. Yes, constant communication, telling me okay. where the others are, where we are, what the what the splits Pieces. on the clock are. Okay the position between the different athletes and myself and, mm-hmm. and, and assessing them while moving forward with me, you know, as looking, not looking back, but paying attention to, are they going to accelerate? Do, can we still maintain this mm-hmm. sort of more cherish the, the right. pace? And we did, and we crossed the finish line in first. In first, so yeah. I was able to deliver on that promise, yeah, which was phenomenal. So what was that feeling like crossing first? It was incredible. I wasn't surprised. I think I was relieved and just ecstatic. Mm-hmm. And I felt my father's presence very strongly at that, oh, nice. that time. And um, I, probably 30 minutes later, we had the award ceremony. Mm-hmm. And to stand on top of that podium and to hear the national anthem and to mm-hmm. see the flag through the eyes of my guide runner mm-hmm. and to know that, you know, it didn't come easily to me, but that I had made the commitment and I had stayed the course even when things got difficult it was something that I knew I would cherish the rest of my life. And mm-hmm. I also knew that that was that I would never match that race again. That, right. that was my ultimate race. And no matter what I did moving forward, nothing would ever top that. Mm-hmm. That's so nice. I love that story a lot. It reminds me, because the timing wise, the New York Marathon, when our girl... Um, and pronounce her name for me one more time. I should Shalane Flanagan, um, who just won the New York City Marathon, which has been really cool. She had a quote that kind of, I feel like you can relate to by what you just said. And she said, um, I've been dreaming of a moment like this since I was a little girl. It means a lot to me, to my family. Hopefully it inspires the next generation of women to just be patient. It took me seven years to do this. A lot of hard work went into this one moment. So I feel as though you may be able to relate to that and, mm-hmm. and help being patient is so important in those moments too, especially since the 1500 didn't work out mm-hmm. and then you stuck around mm-hmm. and persevered and then struggled in the 3000. Such a cool story. Thank you. <laughs> but I also wanted to ask you too, how you handle nerves before big races. Do you do any sort of self-talk to keep you calm and focused? So I'm interested to hear your answer because um, I often get very anxious before my races and I have the same types of nerves before, you know, like a big presentation at work. Mm-hmm. So I feel as though listeners, even if they aren't runners um, or, you know, don't participate in athletic events, they will be able to take away some of your preparation tactics and apply it to their life. So I definitely get nervous. And I think every everyone does. If I truly had the answer, I would have done a better job helping the, the kids from my country mm-hmm. <laughs> this season contain their nerves because I'm always trying to figure out how to make help them feel more comfortable. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what I convey is going to be particularly (laughs) helpful, but I try to just really stay calm within and stay focused on the task at hand. And yet to remind myself that on this day, at this time for this task, I've done everything that I can do to be prepared for it. Mm -hmm. And whether that was the optimal preparation or 
not as good in a preparation as I would have liked it to be. It is what it is for that day. And so I need to make the most of what I have to give that day, whether it be a presentation or a talk with you or right. a podcast, which I'm also nervous about. <laughs> You're doing great, so don't worry. No and more nerves. <laughs> a race. So I just try to, to remind myself to stay calm, to stay focused, mm-hmm. and to realize that I'm going to do the best job that I can do at that time. Mm-hmm. And really, how can any of us any of us ask more of ourselves than that? Mm-hmm. So I like that a lot. And I always tell myself, um, over-prepare, then go with the flow. Mm-hmm. So if you know you've done the work, then just you just have to show up and do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, so I also wanted to ask you what sort of advice you would offer to listeners that may have um, a disability or perhaps have a child that has a disability. How would you encourage them to believe in themselves and you know, so that they can still accomplish so much, even with a disability? Um, I think learning to be comfortable with yourself and accepting yourself as you are and realizing that you are the way you are for a reason and mm-hmm. that, that, that God had a plan for you and that he doesn't put us in a situation that we can't succeed with and mm-hmm. that we can't deal with. And so I think it's really important for parents to instill in their children that quality of acceptance and that you you are great and you're fantastic and you can do anything you want just the way you are Mm -hmm. you may need to make changes in how you succeed Mm -hmm. in certain tasks but that if you keep working towards that task you'll be successful so I think just building that confidence and that comfort with ourselves Mm -hmm. is really important I think that that's for anyone really Mm -hmm. Um, just acceptance and belief and that you haven't been given something that you can't can't overcome or that you can't succeed with is mm-hmm. really important. Oh good. I like that a lot. I also wanted to ask you, did you ever encounter any naysayers? Because I as you know, they're everywhere in life. Sure. And um, if so, how did you not fall victim to them? So so as a person with a disability and as a person with a disability who looks different as a result of albinism. Mm-hmm. So albinism is a lack of pigmentation and often a person who has albinism is referred to as an albino. Mm-hmm. And so being a person with albinism, I've often encountered people that had more negative things to say about mm-hmm. my about me than than positive and and then with the visual impairment piece, people saying that, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that because you're visually impaired. And my response is, I can do anything that I want to do. Mm-hmm. I may just I need that. to do it differently. Mm-hmm. And I may take me longer to get to that success, but chances are good that there's something that each and every one of us has that's going to take more effort mm-hmm. to accomplish than the next person. So I'm really not behind anyone else as a result of the albinism or mm-hmm. the disability because there are areas that I'm stronger in than they are and there are areas that they're stronger in than I am mm-hmm. and that's okay because everyone's everyone's different right and I tend to be the person that tell me I can't do something and I'll show you mm-hmm. so I've really tried to instill that in my son mm-hmm. um, when someone says you can't do this because you can't see my response is to quietly, internally, confidently, but not in a cocky way, demonstrate to them through my actions that I can indeed do mm-hmm. exactly what they said I can't. Right. I love that. Because yes. I think um, everyone encounters some people that say, whether Absolutely. it be at work, I counter it a lot too. Like, you know, I don't think you're going to be able to do that, but you can prove them wrong. Yes. So I think that's a, a really nice response. Thank you. Yeah, believing, uh, believing, ultimately believing in yourself mm-hmm. and what you're able to do is going to overcome the challenges and the obstacles that anyone encounters. Mm-hmm. At least that's how I feel. Yeah, I love that. So 12 years ago, you decided to retire from running, given that finding running guides was often very difficult. You had to coordinate basically around their schedules. Um, can you tell us about this time in your life and what sort of emotions you were feeling giving up the running? 
So I was very fortunate to have a very successful running career, both mm-hmm. in high school and then at the Paralympic level. Oh, and I forgot to mention, not only did you do the 1992 Games, but you also went on to go to the 96, 2000, and 2004. Yes. So that is a very, yes. very good career. <laughs> so it's very long-lived, yes. Mm-hmm. And so I was very fortunate to have so many wonderful opportunities, opportunities that helped me grow into who I am today, and relationships that have blossomed and have become lifelong relationships with friends all over the country, all, mm-hmm. over the, all over the world. So when I realized that retirement was inevitable just because of, primarily because of the challenge of coordinating the guides, it was just something I had to accept. It was mm-hmm. something that, that that's just the way it was going to be. And how could I be resentful towards that when I just had a career that career, was over right. 16, 16 years being internationally and nationally ranked. And I forgot to ask you, how old were you in the 92 games when you won that? Uh, are you going to make me do my... Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was in my early 20s. The early 20s, yeah. okay. But then you continued on then up until your, I guess, early 30s? Late 30s. Late 30s, yeah. okay. So Very I actually cool. set my personal best 1,500 meter, which mm-hmm. is the mile equivalent, at 37 years old. Okay, Very so, cool. yeah, I, I definitely didn't just... Plateau out. I mm-hmm. was actually able to see progress over the years, which was uh, very fortunate for me. Okay, very cool. So then, twelve years ago, the, you gave mm-hmm. up the running, I did. and so um, you felt okay because you had such a successful career. And so I didn't really have a choice, bit. right? You know, I mean, it was you know, if I wasn't visually impaired, and I would then I would be able to just go out each day and run independently, mm-hmm. and so that would have been optimal and ideal. But the bottom line is, there was nothing I could do about mm-hmm. it. So my choice was to feel sorrow about it after such a great career mm-hmm. or to just move on and move forward. And my personality tends to be, okay, just accept it and move yeah. on and um, find something else to, mm-hmm. to put that time and energy into. So that's what I did. So I was bummed to have to retire, of course, because I love running and running mm-hmm. is such a huge part of my life and it gives me my confidence and it gives me mm-hmm. my peace, but it was just the way it was. And so just dealt with it, I guess. Right. What um other sport? Do you do any other sports like cross training? And I'm always active. Okay. You know, I've played goalball, which is a sport for the visually impaired and blind. What is that exactly? So it's it's a team sport. It's mm-hmm. one of the only team sports for the blind and visually impaired. It's played on a gymnasium floor. The court's approximately the size of a volleyball court. Mm-hmm. Uh, to accommodate the visual issue the ball used has it's roughly the size of a basketball and it's blown rubber and inside it has bells so that when it's you throw it you can track it and hear Mm -hmm. it by sound rather than sight okay and the court is on laid out on the floor with rope or string and on top of the string is tape and so it's tactile so that the the athlete knows their position based on the on where the string based on the outline of the court that's, Mm -hmm. that's on the floor and six people to a side, you throw the ball back and forth across the court. Um, the throw is similar to a bowling throw, but it, there's a lot more power behind it than one would use to, mm-hmm. to, to bowl. And you block the ball by diving across the floor, landing on your hips and your sides and blocking the ball with okay. your body. So it's pretty physical. It's pretty, it's definitely very physical. Mm-hmm. And so I played goalball for a while, and I tandem cycled for a while. A tandem mm-hmm. cycle is a bike for two. Mm-hmm. We actually have a triplet, which is a bike for three, because we have three. That's so fun. In our class. Yeah. Yeah. And hiking. I'm pretty athletic. I've done pretty much every sport. Every sport: downhill skiing, cross country skiing. Um, do you do cycling at all? That's the tandem. Cycle. Oh, the tandem cycle. Yes. Okay, yeah. got it. And I was yeah. doing some just cross training in the gym, weightlifting. And mm-hmm stationary bicycling so I'm just really active and okay so kind of in anything and everything I can everything, do right okay so fast forward 12 years till about a year or so ago can you tell us the story when you decided you could now have a dog as a training guide and how Mita who and Mita's been in the background chewing on her her bone throughout the interview and now she's um running around here very cute dog can you touch on that time in your sure. life so in um roughly 2006 I Got my first guide dog from okay. Guiding Eyes for the Blind, and her name was Kirsty. And about three years ago, two and a half years ago at this point, she um, retired from working, mm-hmm. and she still lives with us. She's also here. She's a lab. So, yeah, yes. she's okay. a black lab. Mm-hmm. 
And I actually had tried to run with her, which technically I shouldn't say because you're not supposed to do that. But okay. I tried to get Kirsty to run, but she had absolutely no interest in mm-hmm. running. And so, but she was a great guide dog for working throughout the day. We worked together for eight years. She retired and I reapplied to Guiding Eyes for the Blind for mm-hmm. a new guide dog. And at that time they had just launched a pilot program called the Running Guides Program where they were training guide dogs to both do typical traditional guide dog work as well as to run mm-hmm. and serve as a guide for their handler. So when they came to interview me to get a sense of what pace I do for my day work with the, with the dog and sort of get a sense of, of what I was looking for in my next guide dog, they asked me if I was interested in the running guides program. And it's kind of funny because I said, yes, but not necessarily a robust yes, just a yes. But what's most important to me is that the dog is able to um, do day work and get me where I need to go mm-hmm. for each and every day. Right. Fortunately for me, Kathy, the regional rep, realized how much my background was around running. And mm-hmm. she definitely put in the report that I was interested in a running guides program. And a bit after that time... I received a phone call saying that I had been matched with a black and tan German shepherd Mm -hmm. named Maida and that Maida was part of the running guides program. So at that point is when I realized how much that meant to me and how much I had buried that love of running Mm -hmm. so that I didn't have to deal with the fact I wasn't running, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I will remember that phone call forever because... um, I knew at that point that there was a chance that I would um, be able to run again and to run independently, more independently than I had ever run before. Mm -hmm. Um, Anytime I want, just being able to pick up the harness, put it on the dog and go out the door and go Mm -hmm. for a run. So Not to be on anyone else's schedule. Yes, exactly. Just whenever it fit, whenever I wanted for as far as I wanted and for as fast a pace, it was all going to be about what I wanted to do for that run. Mm -hmm. So Maida and I were matched in April. They we did some home training, and first I mastered we mastered our work together. Mm-hmm. And at the end of April or early May last year, the running guides trainers and came from Guiding Eyes came to our house, and I was shown the running harness, and mm-hmm. we went out for our first run ever together, mm-hmm. and. Um, I was very nervous, right. <laughs> very nervous because I thought, what if I can't do this? What if I can't get the technique down? What if, mm-hmm. I, what if I am terrible at running with my guide dog, mm-hmm. which sort of seems ridiculous because of the background of running that mm-hmm. I have. But at that point, I knew how much that match and this opportunity meant to me. Mm-hmm. And I wore, it was raining and I wore my dark glasses even in the rain, so <laughs> no one could see my eyes. Right. And um, we went out, and we went down the street, and we put the running harness on, and they told me what to do, and, and we started running, and it was very hard to contain my emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, but I was very quiet, and mm-hmm. at first the Nick, the running guide's dog trainer who had trained Maida, wasn't sure if I liked it or thought it was cool because I was so quiet. But Uh I explained to him later that I was actually in tears. Mm -hmm. And so I was not talking for that reason. Right. It was just so, it was just an incredible, incredible experience. And we ran about two miles and it was very smooth and it felt very comfortable and made a truly loves to run. Mm-hmm. I'm so blessed that she was matched with me. She loves running as much as I love running and finds as much peace and solitude in it as I do. Mm-hmm. And so we continued to work together on the training part of it. Okay. And um, we have become so smooth over the course of our time working together out on the trails and out on the roads running. We can run anywhere from uh, you know, three, four miles to 10 or 11 miles. Mm-hmm. All of the dogs are different. You know, okay. I'm fortunate that Maida likes to run as much as she does. Mm-hmm. She can run a fast pace. She doesn't care for the slower pace as much, but she can run slower paces. Okay. But we'll go out and we'll run six or seven miles at eight, eight, 15 mile wow. pace. Yeah. And it's, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. It's, I still I have to pinch myself every time we go out to run together because mm-hmm. It's just such a gift to have it back in my life. Right. And, uh, we now have 
new running goals and mm-hmm. um, sometime in the next probably three or four six months Maiden and I will will work on um, trying to run a race together mm-hmm. so, oh good yeah because yeah. right now you train with Maida and then if you run a race you have a guide runner that yes. runs with you okay exactly got it yes. okay but there may be a race where you can run with Maida yes I okay. believe that we can and, and Tom Panic, the CEO of Guiding Eyes for the Blind mm-hmm. is um utilizes a guide dog as well and his he and oh, cool. his guide Gus recently ran a large race in New York City mm-hmm. and Central Park and it went oh, phenomenally so well and so that's opened the door for mm-hmm. some of us um, some of the other runners who have, have running guides dogs to get out there and do the same so. got it um, and is this a new feature too the running um, the guide dogs yes so, so there are approximately probably 10 or 12 running guide oh, that's teams it right now. at this point okay um, but each month guiding eyes brings a, a group of individuals who are blind and visually impaired mm-hmm. in to be matched with guide dogs okay and each month there has been a number of people from the class who have also start the running guides program very cool it's important to master your day work skills first mm-hmm. and to you know establish the rapport and the relationship with the dog in day work before moving on to the running program mm-hmm. but the program has taken off it's really exciting and it's giving so many people the opportunity to get out there and to run and to be on their schedule fit yeah on their own time and even just to integrate with other groups um Maida and I have been out on a couple of group runs with clubs mm-hmm. where we've gone out and we've run five miles mm-hmm. right in the middle of a running club mm-hmm. you know, so, so cool just phenomenal and she actually we're we run over at Haverford College, and there have been a number of times where we've been running on the trail, and I'll feel her pick up the pace, and I know that she sees something. So she's racing. <laughs> she's, what I realize is she's trying to bridge the gap between myself and other runners, and she literally will take me, run run us up to a group mm-hmm. of college runners or high school runners, cross-country teams that are out practicing, mm-hmm. and she will integrate us into the group. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, That's so funny. Just, yeah. I just sort of introduce myself Mm -hmm. and introduce her and tell them what we're doing and then Mm -hmm. we run with them for a while and then eventually they're going their way and we're going our Mm -hmm. way and we part ways but it's it's pretty the first time it happened it was really it was hysterical yeah she probably makes you run faster too (laughs) yeah right yeah and I think she just likes being in the middle of the group but I mean she literally inserts herself with me in the middle of the group Mm -hmm. and we're in the middle of you know 10 or 15 runners you'll see myself and Maida running mm-hmm. alongside them just like we're one of them right so. that's so neat yeah. I love that so I wanted to ask you in life um, there's always a lot of rejection and failure and we talked about the 1500 meter run mm-hmm. and even though that wasn't you know you still got bronze but, but it still was mm-hmm. um, it was tough can you tell us maybe about another time when you were rejected and or failed at something and how you worked to overcome the rejection and or failure so really, I think each of us fails at some point throughout mm-hmm. each and every day. Mm-hmm. And so in order to be success- successful, one fails many more times than they succeed. Mm-hmm. And being able to just go with that flow, and like I said earlier, that I tend to have that personality where I just automatically adjust. And that's kind of a gift of being a person with a disability because I have no choice but to adjust in all that I do every day and all day long. Mm -hmm. Really basic things that you don't think about, like how many clicks to the right is the cold, warm water on the knob of the washing machine. Like Mm -hmm. I'm always adjusting um, to accommodate that, that vision. And that has helped me develop a personality that just sort of takes all of those things in stride where I fall short Mm -hmm. and I just reassess and figure out what the new route to get to the next rung in the ladder Mm -hmm. will be so that's just kind of my approach all all of the time and sometimes those failures are bigger or greater Mm -hmm. than others but I think if you apply that principle of okay stop breathe, assess, what can I do next to move forward again? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of just automatically programmed, programmed for me. So that's kind of my approach. I love that. That's amazing. It's a really good advice. So whenever anyone hears your story, they're obviously going to be inspired because like we said, you have a lot of grit and it's obvious that you have a profound work 
ethic that has brought you such a great amount of success with running. But do you have any faults and how do you work to overcome them? Because I think a lot of times when people see successful people, they think, oh, they have it all together. You know, it's easy for them or whatnot. But um, what a lot of times people don't see are that everyone has faults and they have to work to overcome them. So do you have any that you work to overcome? So I... Every day I have faults, mm -hmm. but for each day those faults are probably different mm -hmm. depending on the situation and depending on my mindset. So I think that we're constantly in need of working on overcoming faults day mm -hmm. in and, and day out because, you know, one day I might be really patient and, and kind and tolerant and re and resistant and all those things within the next day maybe I'm tired or things didn't go exactly the way I wanted and I had to, to refocus and mm -hmm. reroute that path which I talked right. about doing but it doesn't mean I'm happy about it so that right. day I might be short-tempered or I might be impatient mm -hmm. or I might not be as kind as I should be and so I think every day we have to try to work on all of those things all faults that exist for each and every one of us mm -hmm. to to make ourselves a better person. And I think being able to acknowledge and recognize when those faults show themselves is really important. And no one's going to do that 100% mm -hmm. of the time. We can only try and be committed to doing the best that we can do and eliminating those faults for each situation or each circumstance. Mm -hmm. So... Yes, I have plenty of faults, and they're different on different <laughs> days and in different situations, mm -hmm. and I try to be conscious of when they are showing themselves and then work towards eliminating them through grounding myself and hitting restart mm -hmm. and thinking about what could I do differently or what should I have done differently and remembering to apply that in the future. Mm -hmm. I like the restart analogy too. So it's almost like the post-game analysis mm -hmm. and to pivot and how can I do something different. Mm -hmm. That's really nice. So um, as humans, um, we're known to be professional excuse makers. And um, so it's very easy to make up an excuse to not go to the gym or not sign up for that next big race. For instance, I keep making excuses of why um, I haven't run a marathon yet because running's been such a big part of my life. So people always ask me why I haven't run it. And I'm always like, oh, I don't know. It's too hard on my body. I have other things going on, but I know I should just do it. So how would you encourage the listeners to embrace challenges and to step outside their comfort zones? I would say to sort of acknowledge what those areas of discomfort are mm -hmm. and then try to think of ways that you can do things to help you feel more comfortable mm -hmm. and for me if I write down a goal mm -hmm. then it's much more likely to take place because I've made that full commitment to mm -hmm. it I don't necessarily like post it on the refrigerator or on the mirror mm -hmm. but I write it down somewhere and sort of slip it wherever in my planner or whatever and mm -hmm. then remind myself of it and just kind of try to keep pushing forward. Mm -hmm. I like that. So you're held a little bit more accountable if you write mm -hmm. it down. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, nice. It keeps, keeps it going. And again, sometimes we, we think our goal should be something very specific. And as time moves forward, maybe that's no longer the best goal. So just being aware of what's working for you at a certain time and being flexible enough that you can adjust that goal if it needs adjusting. Mm -hmm. Just always having a goal, I think, allows us to continue to move forward. But I think it's important to be flexible and realize that sometimes a goal we set is no longer an appropriate goal or an mm -hmm. ideal goal or a goal that energizes us or that we need to do. So it's okay to adjust it. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I'm very much about setting a goal mm -hmm. and doing everything that needs to be done to get to that goal, right. which I think is probably evident at this point. Right, right. <laughs> um, so do you ever have days when you don't feel like working out or going on a run, and how do you mot your, motivate yourself to get the workout done? Um, so I think there's probably a lot of listeners that go through that. I, sure. I do myself where yeah. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I feel like getting up tomorrow morning and doing this run. Sure. It's it's hard to, mm -hmm. to get up day in and day, especially with busy lifestyles that we have. I just try to, to push myself to, to do something or maybe find a partner who's interested in, in going out for a run with me because that can make it, you know, mm -hmm. that that makes it easier. And I also tend to be a just, just do it, just mm -hmm. get it done kind of person. Mm -hmm. So... But I think making realistic goals and then breaking them down is also also helpful. Mm -hmm. Just keeping your 
your eye on the prize, but also realizing that some days you might not want to work out and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we need to remember that sometimes we need rest and mm -hmm. respite from our from certain things and that that's acceptable mm -hmm. but I think just try to try to look at the big picture and try to remind yourself of what your ultimate goal is and even if you like specifically for running if you mm -hmm. have a 10 mile day on the calendar and you get up and you're just dreading going out to do that run and mm -hmm. it's going to drag on and on maybe adjust it instead of not going out to run at all instead mm -hmm. do a three mile run right and then the next day, revisit the 10-mile concept. Mile. I like so that, I think it's yeah. just that continuous like reassessment, readjustment without completely abandoning mm -hmm, for sure. the concept or the yeah. goal. And I also like what you said about rest days because sometimes I even get to the point where I'm going every day, every day, every mm -hmm. day. And it's good to sort of step, as they say, step off the treadmill for a second because mm -hmm. um, your body does need that rest and not mm -hmm. to be so hard on yourself same time yes so I also wanted to see if you wanted to talk about your son he's so cute I saw pictures um, that you adopted from China mm -hmm. so can you tell us about what the journey has um, been like for him with him sure so JT is uh, just turned 15 mm -hmm. and he came to be a part of our family when he was four mm -hmm. he was um, in a Chinese orphanage orphanage for those first four years of his life and um, we were very blessed. My husband received an email sharing JT's situation and story with us. Mm -hmm. And he received that email because JT also has albinism. Mm -hmm. And the person simply thought that as a result of the fact that I have albinism, that John would maybe be interested or know someone who would be interested in mm -hmm. having um, in helping find JT a home. Oh. So John contacted me at work that day. He gave me a call and he told me about um, JT and we both pretty much instantly decided that, you know, we wanted to bring JT home, give JT a home and bring him into our family. So we did. And it's been a blessing mm -hmm. um, every single day. Mm -hmm. And he um, he's doing wonderfully. When children come home, come to a home after being in an orphanage in an institutional situation for any amount of time. There are lots of obstacles to overcome and deficits to make up. Mm -hmm. And JT has done a phenomenal job doing that. He is also a runner. And mm -hmm. so that's a really nice thing for us to share. Mm -hmm. And John, JT, and I often will go out for a run on the weekends for a three or four mile run. We've done some races together. Um, he's currently a freshman in high school mm -hmm. and yeah so that's awesome does Maida go on the run with you guys too she Adult? does okay she does yes yeah yes the whole crew will go oh good yeah I love that story so it's been just around 11 years now yes okay exactly and very cool JT went from a Chinese social welfare institute to an American run orphanage mm -hmm. uh, through missionaries and we will actually have the opportunity to see those that that couple okay. and in about a month when JT and I head out to Sacramento, actually JT Maida and I head out to Sacramento okay. for the U.S. Association for Blind Athletes National Marathon Championships. Oh wow! And um, we will have the opportunity to spend time with those two missionaries. Yeah, um, which will be really nice. I think it will be nice for them and it will be nice for JT. That's amazing. Yeah, I love that. And then Pam, I didn't even talk about um, your work on a daily basis too. I didn't know mm -hmm. if you wanted to touch on that at all. <laughs> We've been talking a lot about running <laughs> and if we're okay timing wise too, I think we're doing good. Yeah. So professionally I work in fundraising, mm -hmm. philanthropy. So um, I work at the Association for Frontotemporal Degeneration. Mm -hmm. It's a rare disease that impacts individuals between the ages of 30 and 60. And it's a degenerative process that takes place in the brain. It's a very devastating disease. There are no, there's no care and there's no cure mm -hmm. at this point in time. So AFTD, the Association for Frontotemporal Degeneration, um, our mission is to work to find and provide care and cure for those impacted by the okay. disease. And I work with um, the development team, and I'm responsible for major gifts, plan giving, corporate sponsorship, those types of things within the development arena. Okay, very nice. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll um, we'll wrap it up with some rapid fire questions. I don't want to keep you all day. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so um, I wanted to see what advice you would give to your 30 year old self. Cause I just turned 30 about, I guess it's been two months now. <laughs> Patience and perseverance mm -hmm. and um, just keep, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Mm -hmm. I think patience is a, 
a good one. Something I have to work on a lot, but I think that it's it's, it's hard in this time of day too because it's instant gratification yes. and everything. Yes, it's harder so, today than it was when I was mm-hmm. growing up for sure. But um, but yeah, patience is a big one. So, do you have any daily routines that help you conquer the day besides running? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't really. I'm not a real. It's, I'm not super routine oriented. Mm-hmm. I guess I just kind of do what needs to get done and move it forward. forward yeah. Um. I do try to surround myself with positive ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the radio station that I listen to at work is called K-Love. It's a Christian music. Mm-hmm. It's Christian music, and, and the messages are so positive. And mm-hmm. I think in the world we live in, it's really important to maintain positive environment positive. and put positive people and positive things in your life. And so I, I try to do that. I like that. Yeah, it keeps me. I prefer to be positive. So mm-hmm. it Definitely. Surround with it. So if you could give one book to someone, what book would it be? So I should have done homework on that one. Um, and don't worry if you can't think of it because it is a little bit of a tough question. So I actually, there are lots of different books that I have read and lots of different books that I like. And I'm one of those people that depends on, on the day as to which, which mm-hmm. book I would read. So um, right now I've been... There's an individual by the name of Nick Voigitz, and he is an individual who was born without arms and legs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, a lot of his stuff is very positive and uplifting mm-hmm. and, and about overcoming. And so um, that's one that I really like. And the other one that I really like are Leadership Lessons from Jesus, where they give you uh, basically leadership. Mm-hmm. They take verse from the Bible and they, they turn them into daily leadership opportunities. Oh, cool. And so it, for me, it's very positive and um, applicable. Mm-hmm. So I like those two. So right now that's what it would be. Okay. Um, in a couple of weeks, I'll be reading, be reading my ultra marathon training book. So mm-hmm. that would probably be the one. Okay. <laughs> so it just depends. Right. So um, for the last question, we may have listeners that are about to run the Philadelphia Marathon or the Half Marathon, or I think there's also the 10K too. 8K. 8K, okay. Yes. I might last minute sign up for that. Um, and maybe even their first turkey trot. So what advice would you offer to them coming into the marathon weekend? So first and foremost, go out there and have fun. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm running a marathon in a, in a month, and my training has not come close to going the way that it needs to. Mm-hmm. I missed eight weeks being ill. And I'm still running it because I'm looking at it as an opportunity to test myself mm-hmm. strength-wise and also to test my ability to adjust my goal, mm-hmm. which I talked about earlier. So I would say go out there, have fun, enjoy it, and embrace the positive race energy that exists mm-hmm. and um, just give it your best. And whatever your best is on that day, it's good enough. Okay. I love that because I have not have time to train for the turkey the turkey trot that I run in annually, and there's some pressure on me to do well. And so yes. that advice comes at the perfect time. Yes. <laughs> um, well, thank you, Pam. This has been so much fun, thank and you. I love hearing your story. Thank you. So. Thank you so much for listening to High Five Success Stories. I hope you enjoyed. If you're interested in more success stories, please make sure you subscribe rate and review my podcast on iTunes or my website at www.stephhayden.com. Thanks again and have a great day.